It's good to see everyone here this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, help us to think well upon your biblical text. Keep us from error. Help us to remember your promises and what you will do in the future that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Dear ones, as you recall, we're refuting the new apostolic reformation movement and pivotal in their understanding of theology is their eschatology. They are post-millennial, meaning the new apostolic reformation movement believes in a restored and glorified church that in some sense, for lack of better and to summarize, is going to Christianize the planet prior to Christ's coming a second time. And so what we've been doing is we've been showing you that post-millennialism cannot be true, no no matter what the brand, no matter if it's a Reformed theologian who has nothing in common with the New Apostolic Reformation movement, or it's an NER proponent, we've been showing you the problem with post-millennialism. And on this slide, I've been showing you post-millennial equivocation. Remember, equivocation is where we use the same term, but we use it differently. So, for example, we have the last days. Let me just give you an example. The Bible teaches the last days extend from the first advent of Christ until the second advent, which is the 70th week of Daniel. Recall that in post-millennialism, they believe that the last days terminated in 70 A.D. So we were showing you also how they distorted the end of the age. We showed you last time how they distorted the abomination of desolation. Again, that's something that occurs in the middle of the future 70th week of Daniel, but again, they place it at 70 A.D. Well, there's one more equivocation that I want to get into, and it really isn't an equivocation, I should say, but I put it on here anyway. It's a misunderstanding where they claim that there is no gap in Daniel's prophecy between the 69th week, which I'm claiming ended just prior to the crucifixion of Christ, and the 70th week of Daniel. They claim that there is no gap. Now, the reason I wanted to touch this here, touch on it here, is because oftentimes pre-tribulationalists, pre-millennialists will be in some sense, lambasted and mocked for believing that there is a gap between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. But what I'm going to show you is that it is inherent to the text of Scripture. In other words, a careful reading of Daniel 9, 24 through 27 shows that indeed there is a gap. And so those who claim that there is no gap between the 69th and 70th week are not reading the text very carefully. And so let's turn our attention to Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And again, this is a good way that you and I, I think, can learn to refute those who claim post-millennialism and the lack of a gap between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. Now turn your Bibles again to Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I want you to recall that Daniel in this chapter, he knew that the 70 years of Babylonian captivity was almost up. And so he was fervent in prayer, praying that God would remember his promises and restore the people of Israel, all for the sake of God's name. And so the answer came in the 70 weeks prophecies. Now, remember, the 70 weeks of years, all we mean by that is it's a, it's a way that the Hebrews would use 70 times 7, or 490 years. So when we're talking about a week of years, we're talking about seven years. That's the denomination. Now, how do we know that years are involved? Well, we know because of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, if I recall correctly, I think it was 2513, Jeremiah had prophesied 
that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. So what God does is he plays off of that. Now, by the way, does everyone remember why were they in captivity for 70 years? Because in their unbelief, they didn't allow their farmland to remain fallow every seven years. So God said, well, since you're not going to obey me, I'll make it lie fallow and unharvested for seven times ten. So ten cycles of the sabbatical years. So that's how the 70 years came about. So certainly Daniel's playing off of that. He's playing off of years, not literal weeks. By the way, the term weeks, it really isn't in the Hebrew. It's just 77s. So notice this is the answer from Gabriel, the angel, to Daniel. It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, stop there in verse 24. One thing I want to point out is notice where he says, the 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. This surrounds the promises here, the people of Israel. Uh, The holy city that's being referred to, of course, is not Vatican City. It's not Moscow. It's not Minneapolis. It's Jerusalem, isn't it? And so the promises are focused on Israel. Notice he says in verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks. Now, stop there for a moment. Remember, the seven weeks is literally seven sevens or 49 years. Now, let's just stop there. What happened in that 49-year period? Well, I believe the decree that's being referred to here in Daniel occurred on March 5th, 444 B.C., And the reason why that decree by Artaxerxes, you can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. The reason that's the best decree is because that is the one that led them to build their fortifications, their homes, their streets. And that is exactly what's being referred to when you see here. Notice it says, and 62 weeks it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So, Notice the seven weeks, the first seven weeks, again, are 49 years. That went from 444 B.C. to 395 B.C. And that's really when Jerusalem had its residencies, in other words, the homes, the streets, the moats, all of its fortifications rebuilt. But notice it also says, and 62 weeks. That 62 weeks of years is 434 years. If you add that to the 49 years, you get 483 years. Okay, now the reason that's important is because that is going to be the time that the Messiah comes. Notice it says, let me read it again, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's again, 444 B.C., until Messiah, the prince, that's Jesus, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Add those up, you get 69 weeks of years. It will be built again, talking about Jerusalem, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So does everyone see that the seven years, the seven weeks and the 62 are added together for the coming of the Messiah? Does everyone see that? Okay, now notice here in verse 26, it says, then after the 62 weeks. Now stop there. Remember, we've already had the seven weeks added to the 62, so we're at the 69th week. Does everyone follow that? Okay, now notice in the text itself, it says, then after. 
The term in Hebrew, if you have after in your English Bible, the term in Hebrew is a hare. Uh, not a little rabbit like Bugs Bunny, but it literally means and after something. It's a timing indication. So and after the 62 weeks, which would be now adding to the seven, would be 69 weeks, he says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, when was the Messiah cut off? Well, let's look at our diagram. The Messiah was cut off when he died and was crucified on the 14th day of Nisan, AD 33. Now, what's very interesting is that happens after the, 70, or excuse me, after the 69th week of years. Remember, if, you, if you've ever read Harold Honer's work on the chronological aspects of the life of Christ, if you do the math from 5 of March, that's March 5th, 444 B.C., when Artaxerxes made the decree, and you go 483 years using 360 days a year because the Jews used a lunar calendar, it ends up being 173,880 days, which brings you to the 10th day of Nisan, 8033, which is Lamb Selection Day. So the 69th week of Daniel culminates in the very day that the Lamb of God comes and presents himself as the Paschal Lamb and yet is rejected. Amen. Four days after that, remember it's after the 69th week, he is cut off, he is crucified. So this is a spectacular prophecy. But again, my point in saying this is notice there is an after. It is not the culmination of the 69th week. Certainly it's four days later. But still it is after that notice Christ is crucified. But notice something else. It says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now stop there. Who are the people of the prince? Well, recall if you read Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, there was going to be four successive kingdoms that would come against the people. The first was the Babylonians. Then you had the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. But then there was going to be a revived Roman Empire where the little horn comes from, the Antichrist. So the people of the prince is a reference to the Romans from which one day the, the Antichrist will come. That is a revived Roman Empire. That's all in keeping of Daniel 2, Daniel chapter 7, and that's why it's referring to the people of the prince who would come and destroy the city. Well, what city is being destroyed? Jerusalem. Well, when was that destroyed? Well, that was destroyed after the 69th week, and it was after Christ's crucifixion in 70 AD. So on our timeline, we'll just put that right here. Okay, but again, it's after. Everyone look again at the beginning of Daniel 9.26. It says, then after. So after the 69th week of years, the 483 years, Messiah would be crucified and Jerusalem would be destroyed. Now notice the last clause in verse 26 of Daniel 9. Referring to Jerusalem, it says, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. What's being referred to there is the same that you read in Luke 21, 24. Turn your Bibles, just keep your page, by the way, or kind of in Daniel 9, 26. But flip ahead to the New Testament to Luke 21, 24, because I want you to see that what's prophesied there is identical to what Christ prophesied in Luke 21, 24. That is the trampling of Jerusalem by the Gentiles that will occur until the 70th week of Daniel. 
Okay, so notice here, this is Luke 21, 24. Jesus here is talking about 70 A.D. Remember I said Luke is different than Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark never talk about 70 A.D. They're exclusively looking forward to the parousia. Luke handles both, and I showed you the evidence of that last time. Luke 21, 24, Jesus says, And they, that would be the Jews, will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And again, all of this is occurring when? After, according to Daniel 9, 26, the 69th week. So what the Bible is teaching us in Daniel 9, 26, and in Luke 21, 24, is that Jerusalem was to be sacked, which we know happens after the 69th week, according to Daniel 9, 26. And the trampling of Jerusalem will, incur, will happen during these last days, or we might call the last days also the time of the Gentiles. But at some point in the future, Jerusalem will have its temple rebuilt. But what I'm showing you is inherent to the text itself is a gap. Not, I'm not reading into it. The Hebrew says a hare. Again, not a little rabbit, but a timing indicator that says after the 69th week, Messiah would be cut off and Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot. How long does that happen until? Well, we don't know. Technically, it's still happening. Isn't it interesting that the temple and Jerusalem has still not been rebuilt? Isn't that interesting? You have a sovereign nation since 1948, and yet the temple hasn't been rebuilt? Red heifer. The, yeah, the red, red heifer trouble, yeah. <laughs> That's part of it, absolutely. So there's an inherent gap in the text of Scripture itself. Now, fast forward to verse 27 here. Notice it says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, the first thing we have to define is who is the he that's being referred to in this text. Well, the nearest antecedent to he is the Nagid. Notice back in verse 26 where it says the people of the prince. The prince there, Nagid, is the antecedent for the he. It's not Christ. This is a reference to Antichrist. Now, proof of this is, notice it says, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. How many know that Jesus never made a covenant with any group of people that only lasted seven years? But according to Daniel chapter 7, that is precisely what this little horn, the false, the Antichrist, is going to do. And, he's, and notice it says, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. So stop there. What is he going to do? He's going to change the law. And we know that, again, in Daniel chapter 7, this little horn will stop the Mosaic law. He will exalt himself as God. And he will, it says, I think it says literally, wear down the saints for three and a half years, for time, times, and half a time. So that's exactly what's being described here in Daniel 9.27. It says he, again, that's the prince, this antichrist, the Nagid, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. That's one seven-year period. That's the seven-year period right here. That's what we're looking forward to. Remember I showed you last week that that's the parousia. So during the parousia, he is going to be given authority and he's going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years. 
But notice in the middle of it, he's going to stop the sacrifice and the grain offering. And notice it says, On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's a fancy way of saying that the one who creates this sacrilege is himself going to be destroyed. How long will it take for him to be destroyed? Well, he's given authority, according to Revelation 13.5, to reign for 42 months, the last three and a half years. That is the Antichrist. Yes, Rich. Oops, sorry, we'll get you on here. Yeah, okay, and he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, confirm means that make strong. It's not a new covenant. It's one that's already there in the books. He's just confirming it, making it strong, strengthening it, um, um, giving credence to it, um, validating it. What is that covenant? Could I make a suggestion? Could that covenant be the Abrahamic covenant? Is it possible from Genesis 15 when God makes, he walks that blood trail with Abraham and and does all this for Israel. And then Israel says, oh, no, we're going to trust in this Yehu, you know, who's the Antichrist. So could it be that this has to do with the Abrahamic covenant, that he's, he's sort of speaking, saying, hey, guys, I got a better covenant for you. God's covenant wasn't that great. Here's mine. Yeah, you know, in short, Rich, we don't know. It's not revealed the nature of the covenant. All we do know is that there is a covenant. It's made for a seven-year period. And apparently from the data that we have, because there will be a sacrifice and a grain offering again, it must entail somewhat the idea that the Jews are able to worship in their temple once again. Now, let me just give you a hypothetical. Again, this isn't revealed, but wouldn't it be interesting if there is widespread warfare and maybe part of a peace agreement is, hey, you Jews, you ease off on the Palestinians, but you get your temple. They get to build it. They, um, they start the system. I don't know. You know, we have no idea. I'm just telling you maybe a hypothetical. But here's the point. What we do know is he's going to make a covenant for seven years. In the middle of it, he's going to change, apparently, the conditions in which the sacrifice and the grain offering are rendered. And we know, according to Second Thessalonians 2, that the one who does it will set himself up in the temple and claim himself to be God. And that is what creates the sacrilege or the abomination of desolation. Remember Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he did the same thing in what was it, 164, 167, right in there, B.C., where he set himself up. It was actually an idol that they had set up to sacrilege the temple back then. And the same thing is going to occur this time with the Antichrist himself presenting himself to be God. The problem with those who believe that this has all happened in 70 A.D. is never did Christ, they have to have the he who makes the firm covenant, they have to make that Jesus. So the question I ask the post-millennialist and therefore the preterist is when did Jesus make a seven-year covenant and then break it? When did he do that? Well, of course he didn't. So that's the problem. And plus they're not reading, obviously, Daniel 7, which shows that this future ruler is going to wear down the saints. Why would Jesus wear his saints down for three and a half years. No, that's the authority that's given to the Antichrist. Uh, yes, Beth. Rich said, use the term confirm a covenant. You used make a firm covenant. Is there a difference between those words which would, uh, you know, kind of negate the 
the confirm covenant that Rich said? Not, not really. Um, there, there's some ambiguity to the term. It could mean make or confirm or hold on to. The, the idea is that there will be a seven-year commitment of some kind, some sort of covenant that's made, and we don't know the, the intricacies. It, that, that will be revealed later in the course of history. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Some some um, some render it that way. They say make a firm covenant. Yeah. Yeah. Make it strong. Exactly. So all we know is that there's going to be a seven year covenant. That's all we can really tell from that. I think. Yeah. So yeah. Good questions. though. good good things to think about. Very good. So what I want you to see then in this text is that as we are mocked for seeing a gap between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel, notice it's an, there's an inherent one in the text of Scripture. Notice carefully in verse 27 where it says, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. When does it say that's going to occur? When does it say it's going to occur? Well, it doesn't, does it? And so that's precisely where the doctrine of imminence comes in. That's precisely the point. We know... The 69th week of years happens 483 years after March 5th, 444 B.C. So you know that's going to be the 10th day of Nisan, A.D. 33. But when it gets to verse 27, it just simply says, He, this is the future Antichrist, is going to make a covenant for seven years. When? You don't know. That I've laid out in great detail last week. That 70th week is the parousia. It begins with Jesus rapturing the church. It ends with him coming with the church. That whole thing is the parousia. If you talk about the rapture, it's the parousia. If you talk about the destruction of the Antichrist at the end, it's the parousia. It's a seven-year program. And so isn't it interesting, the parousia, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. You have no idea when it's going to come. Even the angels of heaven have no idea. No one knows. So this gap between the 69th week, which predated the crucifixion by four days... And the 70th week is inherent to the text of Scripture. So when the post-millennialists say, hey, you, you pre-millennialists, you pre-tribulationalists, or you pre-rathers, because by the way, pre-rathers would be on our side in this discussion, or a mid-tribber or a post-tribber, the pre-millennial issue is the issue. You pre-millennialists, you believe that there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel, and they try to pat themselves in the back, and they say, we see no gap, and therefore we see that everything was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Realize, if you start the decree at March 5th, 444 B.C., and you go 490 years, it doesn't give you 70 A.D. Okay, so what do they do with that? They say, well, it's just general numbers. So all of a sudden, now they don't take it specific. It's no longer, it's just a general principle, the numbers, they don't work out. And then they're also telling you all of this was fulfilled Again in 70 AD. Yes, Eric. Uh, one of the many things that supports the gap, in my opinion, is that uh, the angel was speaking to Daniel about his people, his people being the Jewish people. Amen. So it's all about the Jewish people for this first 69 weeks. The age of the Gentiles, the church age, was a mystery. Yeah. And so, in other words, he didn't tell Daniel about that. And then he told Daniel about 
the 70th week. So I think that that also fits into this idea of a mystery, of a, of a gap between week 69 and 70. Well said, Eric. I think you're exactly right. And in saying that, I'll qualify both you and I because I agree with you is that that doesn't mean that the Gentile inclusion isn't significant, and I know you're not saying that. Um, it's prophesied in, in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham is going to be a blessing to all the nations. So Gentile inclusion, we see that the Messiah is to be a light to the nations. In fact, Israel was meant to be that. We see this Isaiah 42, Isaiah chapter 49. So absolutely, so Gentile inclusion isn't a peripheral matter, but you're absolutely right when it comes to this text the prayer was about the holy city and the people who had really, they had violated the third commandment. They had taken the Lord's name in vain and lived in a way that brought disrepute. That's what Daniel's concerned with. And that's why it's so beautiful, his prayer at the end. He says, oh my God, hear and listen for your people in your city, bear your name. And the idea was that God would remember his promises that he had made, unconditional promises that he never breaks. God never breaks his covenant promises, the Antichrist does. How many years Bob has been teaching us that God is the promise keeper? Isn't it interesting, then you have these preterists who are claiming that Christ somehow breaks a covenant? Isn't that odd? There's some, I mean, to me, think about that. There's a seven-year covenant made with many, but Jesus breaks it. So there's a duplicitous nature in Christ, but there's no problem. They, They just wash right on by that as if there's no problem with seeing that Jesus Christ broke a promise. Um, I, I think that's a big issue. Just as it's a big issue, remember, their claim is, Paul is teaching in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 that at the parousia, the coming of Christ, Antichrist, is destroyed. And the post-millennialists and the preterists say, well, that happened in 70 A.D. So if that happened in 70 A.D., then Jesus' parousia, his second coming, happened in 70 A.D. Therefore, you have no hope. There's no future. And by the way, I'll tell you why this is such a big deal to me. You all know I love R.C. Sproul. I have sung his praises for many years, but when I was a young man, I read his book, Last Days According to Jesus, and he's a partial preterist, and it really bothered me because I realized the import of what he was saying. If if R.C. Sproul was correct, then I really started to doubt that there was a second coming at all. But let's, let's just put our cards on the table. If Jesus did everything including uh, destroy the Antichrist of the splendor of his parousia in 70 AD, then what's left? Okay, that was the import that I got from that. And so that's why this is a big deal. I, it was, if it was a faith shaker for me, preterism and things, then I think it is for others. Um, in 2006, I read an article that Bob had put out, or maybe 2007, I don't remember the year, and I highly recommend it. It really helped me refute R.C. Sproul's book, the title of the article is This Generation. And let me just give you a little, I, I didn't even intend to go here, but let me explain what it's about. One of the points that R.C. Sproul and the partial preterists make is Jesus will say, and we'll get to this in our Matthew study, he will say, truly I say, all these things will come upon this generation. Or this generation will be here, some will be standing here and not taste death until they see all these things take place. What R.C. Sproul does with that in the preterists as they say, this generation must be the 40-year window of people, the 40-year time period of those who are alive during Jesus' earthly ministry. What Bob showed is that this generation is actually a pejorative. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever living in Cain and Abel's day or you're an unbeliever living 50 years from now if the Lord should tarry. 
you're part of this generation. You're characterized by unbelief and rebellion. In Mark 9, when the disciples failed to cast the demon out because they're relying upon their own power, what does Jesus say? Oh, what should I do with this unbelieving generation? Now, is he saying that they're unbelievers? No, but he's saying if you're going to act like that, you're no different than the unbelieving generation. So why does he use this generation? Think about it. This generation seeks after a sign. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but none will be given to it. So does that mean, well, only the people living during Jesus' time, they won't be given a sign, but everyone else will? No, it means if you're an unregenerate person, the only sign that you're ever going to be given is the sign of the resurrection, the sign of Jonah. Where do you get that? It's from the scriptures. Whether it's Bob preaching it on a, over the, the TV when somebody tunes in their cable, or it's another pastor on the radio, or it's you mentoring someone and you're giving the gospel at a Perkins or a Byerly's or what have you. However it comes, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, and that's the only thing this generation has. So this generation isn't a time period, it's a pejorative. And it is, it's really characterized by unbelief. That's the point. So once I had that breakthrough from Bob's excellent exegesis, I thought, well, you know what? That's really the whole enchilada. Because now we're opened up to the fact that these things can happen in the future. And then from there, we just kept building. So that's what I want you to see is that when you look, when you look at the exegetical evidence, the evidence is on our side for a gap. Why? Verse 26, Daniel 9, then after. Then after a hair. It shows that there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. We're not reading into the text that. That is the text. So with that, let me get off of this slide. I think I've been on that slide for way too long. I might be on it until the parousia itself. We'll go on to this next one. Oh, I get, no wonder I can't see. I don't have my glasses on. I can see you fine. I can't read my notes here. Now, there are some texts in Revelation that I think clearly show just how horrific the last seven years are prior to Christ's millennial kingdom. And these texts that I'm going to show you also show that the church doesn't have the authority on earth as the new apostolic reformation try to uh, prove that they do. Yes, Paul. I, just real quick, because I want you to obviously continue, but um, this is not the first time we've run across these ideas, and it won't be the last, because uh, the, the teaching I get out of this, the takeaway I get out of this, and tell me if I'm not getting it right, is how cleverly the church can become apostate. Um, yeah. That's what I get that's out of That's a really good mainly. way of putting it. That is a very good way of putting it, Paul, how cleverly they can become apostate. It is some of the preterist reading into the text, something that's not there, is very clever. The problem is, is that the cleverness can only go so far. So, for example, when you really get the data down and you go from March 5th, 444 B.C., and you go 69 weeks of years, they use 360 days for a year. And by the way, how do we know that they do that? Well, even go to the book of Revelation, 42 months, and you look at the 1260 days, it's predicated on 30-day months. Okay, so even Revelation has 30-day months. Why? Because the Israelites used a lunar calendar. It's just what they did. So if you take the math and you go to 173,880 days, and remember, you don't have zero, so you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. You have to take that into account. Sure enough, you come to the 10th day of Nisan, A.D. 33. And by the way, there was a scholar years ago who took, he was the one who accounted for the, uh, the Olympics, his name was Flagin. 
He was a chronicler of the Olympics. And what's very interesting is he has a writing. You can read about this from this man named Edwin Yamauchi. He's a New Testament scholar. Well, Flagin was a chronicler of the Olympics. And he got his information from another historian named Thallus. Well, what Flagin recounts is that in the third year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was the greatest darkness the world had ever seen. In fact, at noon, the stars could be seen in heaven. And it was widespread. It could be seen from Bithynia in Turkey all the way to North Africa. So it couldn't be some, you know, lunar eclipse or solar eclipse or anything like that. It wasn't anything like that. Well, it's very interesting. If you do the arithmetic, the first Olympics began in 176 B.C. Remember, this is the 202nd Olympiad. It's every four years. So they went continuously for four years. Well, if you do the arithmetic, that darkness happens in 33 A.D., Well, that's the very year that Christ was crucified. Now, the reason I point that out is Daniel is giving us a very precise prophecy that ends on the 10th day of Nisan, AD 33. You have Flagin, a secular historian, is saying this great darkness that the Bible describes that happens while Jesus is on the cross. It occurred in the third year of the 202nd Olympiad. Bob is showing us time and time again in the book of Acts, these things happened. We're not giving you myths or cleverly crafted tales. These things occurred. Jesus Christ came riding in on Lamb Selection Day, the 10th day of his son, and the very day prophesied in Daniel. What, is, what did the preterists do with that? Oh, who cares? Oh, we're off by 30, 40 years. Well, it's a rough estimate. But just move on. We take the Bible seriously. Oh, really? <laughs> to me, the truth is always better than the heresy. It always is. If you goof up the scriptures and you finally, hey, it actually says this rather than that, the truth is always better than the heresy. It always is. Is that April? Is that April? It would be like our April, March. Yeah, that's their Nissan. Yep. March, April. Yeah. Uh, Excuse me. Another thing that when I was writing some uh, technical material on this in seminary, I chose topics that I was interested in anyhow. One of the problems with replacement theology, infant baptism, there's no future prophecy other than Christ will return, or the Great Commission means we rule over the nations now. All of that, it's assuming that hermeneutics need, need to change at some point. Right. Okay? Because... If you look at, as Eric's preaching through Matthew, in the first advent, look at how detailed Old Testament prophecies were in their fulfillment. Where Christ was born, in order that it might be fulfilled, in order that it might be fulfilled. How many times does it say that in Matthew? A lot. And there are detail, 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 detail including at the crucifixion, all of these things. So what uh, the replacement theologians and others are saying is that now when it comes to the future, all the hermeneutical rules change. Right. Details no longer matter. Specifics no longer matter. And we should take these as figurative or however we want to, and forget about the details. Yes. But there's no reason to believe that. Right. The prophets didn't believe that. Daniel didn't believe that. 
Luke didn't believe that. Matthew didn't believe that. And that is such a weak argument that I wouldn't want to go public with it. Right. I've been telling people for a long time, don't go into the realm of public events, I mean public debate, with an argument that anybody could shoot down. Yeah. If you're not sure about it, don't debate until you are more sure. Right. Just stay silent because maybe you don't understand. Now, there's a book by Sir Robert Anderson written in the 19th century that takes all of this seriously. And before there was an Israel, he already laid this out. Yes. And so that was in the 19th century. People have seen these things as they go along. And I also found someone in the 1930s who predicted that national Israel be restored before it happened or even seemed possible. So the details will be, they may be surprising. I don't discount that. I don't think we would have thought that um, Elijah who would come would be John the Baptist. Right. But there are many details that will exactly happen. And don't assume the rules changed. Amen. Don't assume we get to take some special hermeneutic, pull it out of the sky, and apply it only to future prophecy. Amen. That'd be a fool's errand. That's right. Given what's happened in the past. And uh, one more thing is this. We need to be sober-minded about this because no one knows how long this times of the Gentiles is going to go. That's right. That's right. And that's not because prophecy is in general not specific. We, uh, for example, the time that they'd be in Egypt, the, the, the various times that are set, this, as we saw earlier, the yep. 70 years. That's right. Okay. But this time from the ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost until the beginning of Daniel's 70th week is intentionally nonspecific. That's right. Jesus says that it is. It's unknown, and it goes at an undetermined amount of time, and that is already set. So we're not changing anything. We're just going with what it says. And as Eric rightly said, this doesn't mean that the times of the Gentiles is unimportant. It's critically important. This is the time when the kingdom of God is being populated with citizens. The one new man. This is essential. Uh, Ephesians 2.15. So, uh, Eric, thank you. Uh, you, This material you're doing is so helpful. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's right. Well said. Ephesians 2.15. I love that passage. That's the one new man, the Jew and Gentile becoming one. And this was uh, something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Again, beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham was promised to be a blessing to all the nations, not just some. So absolutely, it's not an afterthought, the church age. Um, Again, the church age, by the way, is a construct theologically. It can be called the last days from the scriptures or the time of the Gentiles. But nonetheless, it is a very important time. As Bob said, that's when the kingdom is being populated. Now, I'm going to put up a text here. And one thing I want us to look at is the New Apostolic Reformation movement, along with all post-millennialists, claim that there's going to be a revitalized church. Um, By the way, there's a post-millennialist named A.H. Strong who claimed that there would be a revitalized church because of the work of the Holy Spirit that would basically Christianize the planet. That's post-millennialism. Well, that has a lot in common 
with this new apostolic reformation movement. Here's the key word I want you to think about, authority. The claim is that the church is going to gain authority over the earth and in some sense Christianize and bring about the kingdom so that Christ just returns to sit on the throne that we create. But I want to show you that in the 70th week of Daniel, I want you to look at who has the authority given them by Christ. Let's look at Revelation 6.8 where the term authority is used. This, by the way, is the fourth seal. And this is the beginning part of the 70th week of Daniel. Notice here it says, I looked, John says, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay, now I want you to notice the personification of this these two riders here, death and Hades. First of all, what is personification? That's where we take an inanimate object and we make it as if it has personality. Well, here, if you look at death and Hades, they go hand in hand. Death, the focus here is the state. These are people who are going to die. They enter into the state of death, which is the separation of their body and soul. Hades is focusing not on the state, but on the location. Either the temporal place of judgment, again, it's not the lake of fire, or simply the grave. But again, death and Hades go hand in hand. The focus in death is the state, Hades is the location. And authority was given, the idea is from Christ. And notice how many are going to die? A fourth of the earth. Now, notice how are they going to die? It's due to sword, famine, pestilence, and the wild beasts. Those four items are used in Ezekiel 14, 21 for God's judgment upon Jerusalem. Because of the rebellion of Israel, God sent warfare, which is the sword, by other nations, in this case Babylon, back in the Old Testament. That led to famine. When people are broken down by famine because of war. By the way, stop there. How many know that there's a famine going on in certain parts of Ukraine? Why? Well, because of the sword, because of warfare. Okay, well, what happens in societies that are broken down because of warfare and famine, they're also open to disease. And so bad is it going to be in the 70th week of Daniel that people will be dragged off even by the wild beast. The identical four items are used in judgment of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 14.21, sword, famine, pestilence, wild beast. Two verses earlier in Ezekiel 14.19, God specifically declares these are the vessels of his wrath. So here we have the vessels of his wrath now poured out on the world. Now, how do we know that this authority, some have claimed that this is an authority they may or may not be used Well, that I don't think is a very uh, plausible reading probably of the data because anytime you see the term authority given in the book of Revelation, it's an authority that ends up being used. So, for example, let's look at Revelation 13.5. This is regarding the Antichrist. It says, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. How many believe that this is an authority that the Antichrist won't use? He's given the authority to do it, but he's really not... Well, no, we know he's going to reign for 42 months, for three and a half years. Okay? So he, we know that. It's revealed right here in Revelation 13.5. So 
the precedent in the book of Revelation is when authority is granted to do something malevolent, it is used. What that means then is a quarter of the earth is going to die due to the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast. Who is committing these acts of violence? Well, nations. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to, to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Isaiah 10, verse 5. Please turn your Bibles there. We'll actually read verses 5 through 6. And the reason I want you to turn there is some people will claim, I'm going a little bit in a tangent, but I want everyone to see this. Some will claim that the opening seal judgments are the wrath of man, but they're not the wrath of God. Well, let's compare that with Scripture. Does Scripture say that God uses the nations as instruments of His wrath? He sure does. Notice what He does in Isaiah 10, 5 through 6. Remember, Assyria first came upon the Israelites. and In fact, they smashed Samaria in 722 B.C. So notice what He says of Assyria because of the sin of His people. He's pronouncing a woe. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Now stop there. Assyria is the rod of his anger. In other words, it is the expression by which God executes judgment. Assyria is the rod by which God is going to spank Israel. Notice the term for anger is af. It's a term that's related to the wrath of God. It actually means nostrils. And the idea is that Yahweh is personified in the sense of like a man, a big man who's angry, and you can see the the nostrils flare. Or maybe like a war horse, and the nostrils are starting to flare, and you know troubles are coming. That's the idea. There's, the people of Assyria were going to be used as the rod of God's wrath. Well, he says it again. He says, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. The term indignation there, za'am, is a term that's repeatedly used throughout the Old Testament for wrath. He goes out and he says it a third time. Look at Isaiah 10.6. I send it, that's Assyria, the rod of his wrath, against a godless nation. This is against Israel. And commission it against the people of my fury. The term there, fury, is often used for God's wrath of Ra. To capture booty and seize plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. Here, Isaiah is telling us, that Assyria, this wicked nation, is used as an instrument of God's wrath. Look at Isaiah, excuse me, Revelation 6.8. Where does the sword come from? The nations that God is using as instruments of his wrath. But the authority here, notice conspicuously, is given not to the church, but to death and Hades personified. Here, authority is not given to the church... But what? To the Antichrist for 42 months. Why do I say that? Because Dutch Sheets or before him in the 1950s, George Warnock, the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, those who claim that one day the church is going to be so revitalized by a moving of the Spirit that we're going to be given authority to in some sense smooth out all of the potholes, Christianize the planet, and then just Christ comes. Well, why doesn't the book of Revelation say then that the authority was given to the church? But instead, the authority by Christ, remember, he's the one who's sitting on the throne, Revelation chapter 5. He's the one who opens the seals. From the seals come the trumpet judgments. From the trumpet judgments come the bold judgments. By the way, they're all from Christ. So if you say, well, I think the trumpet judgments are wrath or the bold judgments are wrath, but not the seal. Well, they all come from Christ. So at the seventh seal, you have storm theophany. 
You have peals of thunder, lightning. Why? Because it shows it's coming from the throne. You get to the seventh trumpet. You have storm theophany, peals of thunder, lightning, earthquakes. Why? Because it comes from the throne. You get to the seventh bowl. You have storm theophany. Why? Because it all comes from the throne. Whether it's the seals, the trumpets, or the bowls, it all comes from Christ. It's all his wrath. And here, he's not giving authority to the church as the new apostolic reformation claims. Dutch Sheets claims we're going to have great authority over the earth. Really? Well, it looks to me that the authority is given to death in Hades. I see it given to the Antichrist, but I don't see it here given to the church. That's a big problem, is it not? Yes, Rich. Yeah, you're, this is amazing what you're saying because it's absolutely true. I mean, God is giving authority to the Antichrist yes. as is shown in, in verse 5. If you skip down a couple of verses later, yes. it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. I mean, this is a Great time reading. Yes. where God is giving authority to the Antichrist. This is astonishing, and we must know this, and we must not lose this. This, this group that you're talking about are crazy. Because, it, is, it is crazy. Yeah, because right. So we have a person like Dutch Sheets who will stand on a national stage and say that in these last days, God is going to give such authority that we're going to have a revitalized church and we're going to, in some sense, I hate to just broadly speak, Christianize the planet. Right. We're going to have and this type of authority, and we don't see that authority. In fact, you just said authority was given, rightly so, to the Antichrist to trample down the saints. Exactly what was promised in Daniel 7. Right. And, and exactly what we right. see in this time is a time of great hardening. Both Bob and you have preached on this and taught this, that this 70th week of Daniel is going to be a time of great hardening that even people are going to realize that these judgments are coming from God and instead of repenting they're going to, they're going to know it's from God and they're going to raise their fist to God yes. and they're going to be angry with God and they're, yeah. they're going to harden their hearts and so it'll be a time of great rebellion a great hardening a time where Absolutely. people are going to be turning away from the Lord well said Rich yeah and so I think the biggest problem that we see here is again the new apostolic reformation movement and those who are in the Different post-millennial movements, they say the church has authority, but look yourself who actually has authority. Think about this. We as Christians in the post-millennial idea, they think we're going to be very successful. Here we're so successful that the entire earth gives their allegiance to the Antichrist. We're so successful as Christians that at the sixth trumpet, you're going to lose a third of the earth. A third of mankind is going to die because the church is so victorious. This is absurd. This isn't a close call. Well, I can see where they get that. No, post-millennialism is absurd. Amen. It's just not biblical. And it should be rejected. I don't care what flavor it is. I don't care if it's reformed. I don't care if it's new apostolic. If it's post-millennial, it's wrong. It's an attack on the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just what he did do, but it's also what he's going to do. And we have to affirm the scriptures that, yes, Christ will destroy this Antichrist at his parousia, not at 70 A.D., as they often claim. One more text, and we'll try to move on to the Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Um, remember, Bob had mentioned some time ago that when we look at Scripture and we're interpreting perhaps a hotly debated passage, we want to come up with an interpretation that's the least contrived. We just want to look at what the author is saying. What is the authorial intent in any given passage? Well, let's look at Revelation 20, verse 4, because this is a clear passage that teaches premillennialism. Let's read it. It says, Then I saw, John says, thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus 
and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, in post-millennialism, what they believe is that this coming to life is either spiritualized, it's not a literal, physical, bodily resurrection, or it has to do with someone coming to faith. So let me read to you a a scholar named A.H. Strong. He died, I believe, in 1921. He was a Reformed Baptist. He was a post-millennialist. But I want you to understand how they understand this text. I'll read you some other men. Listen to how they understand this. Regarding Revelation 20, verse 4, this post-millennialist, A.H. Strong, said, We may may therefore best interpret this passage as teaching in a highly figurative language, not a preliminary resurrection of the body in case of departed saints, but a period in the latter days of the church militant when under special influence of the Holy Ghost, the spirit of the martyr shall appear again. True religion be greatly quickened and revived, and the members of Christ's churches become so conscious of their strength in Christ that they shall, to an extent unknown before, triumph over the powers of evil both within and without. So again, notice the victorious church. Then why is the Antichrist given authority to trample them down for 42 months? In fact, that's why they're dead. They were killed by the Antichrist. So I don't know what he's reading. Listen to this. This is from this R.J. Rushduni. He's part of this dominionist reconstructionist movement. He's post-millennial. He says, quote, this resurrection is not a bodily resurrection, talking about them coming to life, but rather people coming to faith in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Now let's think of the absurdity of that. So what Rushduni, again, a very famous Christian dominionist uh, post-millennialist is claiming as that this coming to life that's referred to here in Revelation 20, verse 4, are believers, people who are coming to faith in Christ. So he's substituting this coming to life, which you and I say is a bodily resurrection. He instead says it's about regeneration. People who are being regenerated by the Spirit so that they come to faith in Christ. What's the problem with that? Well, let's read why these people were killed. He says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Okay, so these are people who have been killed. They're beheaded. If you lose your head, you're dead. So they're dead. They've been killed. Why were they killed? Because of their testimony of Jesus. They were killed because they were believers. They were killed because they already were believers. So then how can the coming to life be them becoming believers? They already were believers. That's precisely why they were killed. Now, let's say you're at a funeral and somebody that you know had died and you talk about them coming to life. Are they going to assume because they had physically died that the coming to life must be a physical resurrection? Or is it about them coming to faith? My point is, because these people have been beheaded, because they were believers, their coming to life isn't regeneration. It's about them having a resurrected body. In fact, if you turn your Bibles to Revelation 20, verse 5, I couldn't fit it all on the screen. I want you to notice that this is called the first resurrection. This is part of the first resurrection. So all saints, every believer, has a part in the first resurrection, no matter when you're raised from the dead, whether it's prior to the 70th week of Daniel or you end up becoming a believer during this time period and it's after 
It doesn't matter. You're part of the first resurrection. Now, notice here very carefully in this verse before we move on, John is not talking about every Christian, is he? He's talking only about those who were beheaded, that is killed, because they were Christians. Now, that's not every Christian. Not every Christian is beheaded and becomes a martyr. Now, why is he answering that objection? Because back in Revelation chapter 6, remember there was those who were dead, martyrs for Christ, under the altar, and they cry out, How long, O Lord? Well, here's the answer. God has now judged his enemies, and he's giving them the resurrection, so they didn't miss out. So notice it says in Revelation 20, verse 5, it says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Now stop there. What is the second death? So if you're part of the first resurrection, the second death has no power over you. Well, look down at Revelation 20, verse 14. It defines for you what the second death is. Revelation 20, verse 14. This is after the white throne judgment. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So if you're part of the first resurrection, you'll never be thrown into hell. That's the idea. So yes, there's going to be a resurrection of all people. The believer who has a part of the first resurrection, but after the white throne judgment, there's going to be another resurrection for only unbelievers. They're the only ones that are at the white throne judgment, and they're going to be sentenced to the lake of fire. So then why do we call this coming to life in this resurrection a spiritual one as the post-millennialists claim? Well, because they don't want it to be a physical resurrection. I remember some years ago, I had a friend, and he's a friend now, he was a professor at the time, and I remember him teaching us. We didn't know Greek at all, so we're hanging on every word that he said, and he was teaching through this text. And it says at the very end of verse 4, it says, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And he says, do you know what that means in Greek? I think I've told you this before. And we said, no, tell us, teacher. You know, we're all excited. And he says it means that they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It just means what it says. They were dead, they were resurrected, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the millennial kingdom. That's what it says. And so that is a very powerful refutation. If you want one with you, use Revelation 20, verse 4 to refute post-millennialism. Yes, Scott. Um, so just a clarification on the, the resurrection at the rapture of the dead in Christ, that, and that and the resurrection at the end of the millennium is, is, is characterized as one and the same at the first resurrection? Or? No, um, remember this is after, so remember in Revelation 19, Christ has just returned. He's destroyed the Antichrist. In fact, he sentences the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet into the lake of fire. So he's just destroyed all the enemies that are surrounding Jerusalem. It's the same battle alluded to in Joel 3, Zechariah 14. Um, it's the same thing that Paul was referring to in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 when Christ destroys the Antichrist with the splendor of his coming. So at that time, you have the end of the 70th week, right? So now you have people who had come to faith. They became believers during that seven years. They missed the rapture because they were not yet believers, in the beginning of the 70th week. 
But they came to faith and they end up being martyred because they will not take the mark of the beast that was required of them in Revelation 14. So this is prior to the millennial kingdom. They're going to be part of that first resurrection. That's what this text is saying. What happens then is after the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20, you read about the white throne judgment. And the only people that will ever be partakers of the white throne judgment are unbelievers. They're all partakers of the second death, which is the lake of fire. You and I will be partakers at some point of the judgment seat of Christ, which is really a reward seat. One in which we're not being judged whether we go to heaven and hell. That was settled the moment we believed in Christ, but rather how much reward will be given. And to be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure when that reward happens. Okay, um, but, so. but my question was about the, the, is there differentiation between, I mean, you're saying the first resurrection, but it seems to me the first resurrection is at the rapture. Well, again, we're t- not talking numerically. We're talking qualitatively. Okay. So qualitatively, that's I, that's there's... A, that's the clarification I was looking for. Yeah, so there's, there's qualitatively, it's being used for either you're part of the first or the second resurrection. And by the way, um, there may be people who come to faith during the millennial kingdom. And this isn't explicitly stated anywhere, so I, I'm just telling you that I would imagine if people are going to come to faith during the millennial kingdom, I would assume that they're going to be given a resurrected body. They would be part of the first resurrection as well. It's, it's never stated anywhere. I'm just saying if that happened, the idea is qualitatively, are you being resurrected unto eternal life or are you being resurrected in the second resurrection unto the second death so it's one or the other and so whether it happens before the 70th week or after the 70th week or during the millennial kingdom if you're part of the first resurrection you're in clover you're going to be reigning with christ forever yeah it's qualitative um not exactly yeah very good good question well i'm sorry we've run out of time um i wanted to get we'll get to this next time we will get to the Great Commission, I promise, because this is being distorted also by the New Apostolic Reformation movement. But let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the profundities found in prophecy. And we thank you, Lord, that you're so precise that we may know the great future that we have, that it's secure all because of Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done and will do for us. We thank you for these things. I also pray for Bob as he preaches out of 1 Corinthians, Lord. We pray that we'd have ears to hear, that we'd be also doers of the word and not just hearers. We pray that you would be with him, protect him. Also pray for Diane and all those who are hurting in our church today with physical problems, uh, with sicknesses. We pray for healing. Uh, we lift these, these up to you now, and Lord, in, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.